uh-oh, I don't have a teaching stand. So maybe we'll find one, and maybe someone can help me find one. But if you have a Bible with you, and you want to grab that right now, uh, we are going to be in Daniel chapter 6 tonight. Daniel chapter 6 is where we're going to be tonight. Shh. Hey, let's dial in. Hey, let me recap the story for you from the very beginning of our week. Our story begins like every amazing story does, like every epic tale in all of history does. Our story this week, the story of the book of Daniel, begins with a war. The war is between two armies, two nations. The first nation is the nation of Judah, the people of God, God's covenant, holy and chosen people. On the other side of the war is King Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian empire. They are fighting over the city of Jerusalem, and God chooses a winner. And every part of our mind would think God would choose Judah, but instead he chooses the wicked pagan nation of Babylon to win this war. God chooses Babylon. God picks them. And you ask, why did God pick them? And the answer is simple. Because God is who he is, and you don't get a vote. You don't get any input. See, this entire week we've been talking about a God who simply is who he is. And we said you can receive him for who he is. You can reject him. But you cannot reshape him into your own image. Our God is in heaven. He does everything that pleases him. And so the people of God lose this war because God picked them to lose this war. They are exiled hundreds of miles away in Babylon. They have to live in a place that is three separate things. I wonder if anyone can remember. It is a place that is un comfortable. It is a place that is un... and it is a place that is un... and we've seen all through the week how it's an uncomfortable place, an unfriendly place, an uncompromising place. Over and over and over again, these people say, you worship our gods, you walk in our customs, or you die. That is the story of the book of Daniel. And we've seen throughout the book of Daniel this individual Nebuchadnezzar, this king, this mighty king over this empire, we saw how he was raised up high by God and he was brought low. And last night, here's what we saw. We saw that finally last night he reached the lowest point of his life. And it says that he turns from his sin and he sets his eyes toward heaven. In other words, he reaches rock bottom in his sin and his desperation for God. And finally, for the first time in his life, he turns his eyes toward heaven and cries out to Yahweh. Tonight... I want every soul in this room to know that the same invitation is going to be extended to you. Tonight, my intention is to declare to you and to invite you toward an invitation that the God of heaven extends toward you. That if you have been running from God your whole life, if you have been doing your own thing, if you have been sinking lower in your sin, if you, like Nebuchadnezzar, have reached a point where you are ready to turn, set your eyes toward heaven and call out to the God who saves Tonight, I'm going to give you an invitation at the end of the sermon to do that. I want you to know right from the beginning that my intention tonight is to declare a God who rescues and who saves, a God who redeems and a God who forgives, a God who invites even the worst of sinners to come before him. See, Daniel chapter 4 ends with Nebuchadnezzar turning his eyes toward heaven. Nebuchadnezzar then has a son. His son's name is Belshazzar. Belshazzar is his son, and his son does not walk in his ways. He does not walk in repentance. Which is a great reminder of this that someone in this room needs to hear tonight. Just because your parents were Christians doesn't mean you are. Just because your parents trust in the name of the Lord God Almighty doesn't mean you do. God has no grandkids. He has kids. 
And if you want a relationship with our God, it cannot just coast on your parents' faith. It cannot just coast on what your parents have always said. It has to coast not only on that. That gets given to you, and you become an individual who calls on the name of the Lord your God yourself. For some of you, you were like me, growing up in a Christian home. You knew things about God, but if you're honest with yourself this week, you realize you don't actually know God, and that could change tonight. The invitation is for you to come to this God and have a personal relationship with him for yourself. In the end of chapter 5, Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's son, ends up losing his entire kingdom. Because of his unfaithfulness to God, God brings down the entire Babylonian empire and raises up the Persian empire, the Mede empire, in his place. And that's where we pick up in Daniel chapter 6, verse 1. Read along with me. It says, It pleased Darius. Nebuchadnezzar is no more. His son Belshazzar is no more. There is a new emperor because emperors rise and fall. But our king is our God. He reigns forever, forever, and he will never be ousted from his throne. It says it pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom. What's a satrap? It's a government official. It's like me talking about a mayor or a city councilman or a city councilwoman. A satrap to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps find, tried to find grounds to charge against Daniel because of his conduct in government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, may Darius king live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now your majesty issued the decree and put it in writing so it cannot be altered, in accordance with the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now when Daniel learned of the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the window opened toward Jerusalem, and three times a day he got on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. These men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and told him about this royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that said in the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. And they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles in Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed because he was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said, Remember, your majesty, that according to the laws of the Medes and the Persians, no decrees or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel, and they threw him in the lion's den. You have just heard... One of the most famous stories in all the Bible. But let me do something for you right now. Let me summarize this story, because maybe you grew up hearing about the story and knowing it, and maybe this is your first time. Let me summarize it in seven parts. Number one, Daniel was a faithful leader. 
Like he was set up to be a leader and he was faithful. Number two, not everyone liked Daniel, so they tried to take him out. Do you notice what happened? They don't like him. They're jealous of him, so they try to take him out. Number three, but Daniel lived so well that there's no charge against him. He wasn't corrupt. He hadn't sinned. He had done nothing wrong. Number four, so the authorities came up with a way to trap Daniel. Number five, Daniel is arrested while he's praying. Number six, Daniel is sentenced to death without a trial. And number seven, Daniel is left to die a brutal death. And if you grew up in church, or even if you grew up around church, I wonder if my summary of the story of Daniel in the lion's den is ringing any bells for you. Because there is another story in the Bible of an individual who went through a very similar experience. And that story is not the story of Daniel, it is the story of Jesus. If you know the story of Jesus, what you know is that Jesus was a faithful leader. But not everyone liked Jesus, so they tried to take him out. But Jesus lived so well that there was actually no charge against him. He had not sinned. So the authorities came up with a way to trap Jesus. Jesus was arrested just like Daniel while he was praying at night. Jesus is just like Daniel. He is sentenced to death without a trial. And Jesus is left to die a brutal death. See, from the very beginning of the week, I told you that the point of this story is not that you would live the same life Daniel lived. You cannot live the same life Daniel lived, but you can trust the same God that Daniel trusted. Tonight, what I want you to see is that Jesus is the better Daniel. Jesus is the one that Daniel points toward. Jesus is the one who fulfills everything that Daniel couldn't do for our sins and for our salvation. The invitation for you tonight is not just to consider the story of Daniel in a lion's den, but is rather to consider the story of Jesus, sentenced to death for you. It goes on this way in the back of verse 16. It says, the king said to Daniel, may your God, who you serve continuously, rescue you. So you remember what happened here in the story. The king set up a law, and the law was that if anyone prayed to anyone else except him for the next 30 days, they were sentenced to death in the lion's den. The king signs the law, and then he's reminded by the people who are setting him up here that in their culture, you are not allowed to repeal a law. Even the king can't do that. And so the king is in a bind. Because he has to put Daniel to death. He can't repeal the law. He can't say, no, 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 don't worry about it. He has to go do it. The king himself, the most powerful man in all of the world, is powerless to save Daniel in this moment. So the king recognizes, I have no power to save you. Only your God can rescue you at this point. And here's what I need you to know tonight. I need you to know that if the king, the most powerful man in the world, cannot save Daniel, cannot save himself, I need you to know that the same is true for you when it comes to your sin. I want you to know that there is no one in this world who can save you from your sin, that you do not have the power to save yourself from your sin. Last night I discussed what happens in our sin. When we say, forget you, God, I'm going my own direction, I'm doing my own thing, to the person who continues to go in this direction, I want you to know that you cannot save you, there is no one in this world who can save you, and until you get that straight in your mind, you cannot come to God. Uh, Let me put it to you this way, because I want you to understand the lack of ability you have to save yourself. I want to introduce you to an individual. Uh, I want to introduce you to an individual named Mike Powell. We have a picture here of Mike Powell. Mike Powell was a U.S. Olympian. He was the long jump champion of the world. In fact, his long jump record still stands for almost 30 years now. 
Mike Powell, in the Olympics nearly 30 years ago, jumped 29 and a half feet. Well, let me try to get your head around 29 and a half feet. Connor Johnson, stand up right now. Well, look, 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 look. That would be the equivalent of Connor Johnson running and jumping right where he is and landing on this stage. 29 and a half feet. This man was unbelievable. You can say it, Connor. There, it, it, is possible, shh, it is possible that in the entirety of human experience, no one will ever jump as far as Mike Powell. Now, here's what I want you to imagine. Let's imagine a scenario. I want you to imagine a scenario that I invite Mike Powell to go on a trip with me. And Mike Powell and I get in the car, and we drive hours and hours and hours to the east, and we end up in the Grand Canyon. Let's see if we got a picture of the Grand Canyon here. This is one of the most beautiful places on earth. Why don't you imagine I set up a challenge with Mike Powell. I say, hey, Mike, Michael, whatever you go by. Here's what we're going to do. Mike, the goal is we're going to jump from this cliff right here, and we're going to see if we can land on this cliff right here. That's what we're going to do. And Mike goes, I don't know if this is a good idea. I said, Mike, you're the long jump champion of the world. Surely you can do it. And so Mike and I both line up, and someone says, ready, set, Go. Now here's what's going to happen immediately. We're both going to sprint toward the edge of the cliff, and I am going to jump off the cliff as hard as I can and push off with my feet and launch into the air. And you and I both know what's going to happen. That just a few feet after that cliff, I am going to plummet all the way down into my river to the sudden death. That will be my tomb. I will die there. But here's what you need to know. Mike Powell's going to do the same thing. He's going to run up to the side of the cliff, and Mike Powell's going to have a spectacular jump. He's going to jump way further than Brian Howard could even dream of jumping. And yet what's going to happen to Mike Powell? He's going to fall to his death in the canyon below. See, here's the truth of it. I jump about 10 feet. Mike Powell jumps about 30 feet. Both of us die because the canyon's far too wide. And here's what you need to know. When it comes to you and God, there is a canyon. There is a chasm that separates you, and that chasm is your sin. And maybe you're a little more righteous. Maybe you've gone to church a little more. Maybe you've sinned less than someone else in this room. Maybe you're the Mike Powell of this room who is the most righteous person on your own. But if you try to get to God on your own, you fall off the chasm into the canyon and down to your death. None of you can get to God on your own. Just like the king of Persia announces to Daniel, only God can save you. And I want you to understand this tonight. That all of us are separated by sin from God and only he can rescue us. None of your righteousness, none of your good deeds, none of your church attendance, none of the good things you do in this life will possibly get you over that canyon to God. Here's what it says in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us tried to jump that canyon on our own and we plummeted to our deaths. We are dead in our sin. and We are all justified freely by his grace the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. In other words, if you try to do this thing on your own, if you want to try to save yourself, there's nothing in it for you but death, destruction, and eternal separation from God. But God has made a way for you to cross that chasm, for you to cross that canyon. And I want you to see that clearly here tonight. It says in verse 17 of Daniel 6, it says a stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. Does that sound familiar to you? A stone is rolled in front of the place where the dead person is. And then the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. And you know what this should be? This should be the end of the story right now. It should be like the credits roll and this is the most sad, terrible movie you've ever seen. 
In this moment, the stone should roll in front, and these massive lions with their sharp teeth should rip Daniel to shreds. It says the the, the king rolls the stone, and I I see these words here in the text. Notice what it says here. It says, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. You know what it's trying to instill in us here? A sense of hopelessness for Daniel. And you know what I think some of you have coming into a night like tonight? I think some of you have a kind of hopelessness with God. I think some of you are going, Brian, the issue isn't I don't think a sinner. It's because I know I'm a sinner. I know I've sinned. I know what I did last month. I know what I did last week. Listen, I know what I did last night at camp. I know what I've done. And so God could never save me. I'm like, Daniel, I'm doomed. I'm stuck in there, and there's nothing God or anyone else in this world could possibly do to rescue a wretch like me, a sinner like me. Some of you have a view of God that there is nothing he could do because he is so disgusted with you, so done with you, so over you, so sick of your sin that he's just done with you, and even if you turn to him, he won't want anything to do with you. And I'm here to plead with you tonight to know that that is not the God I worship, and that is not the God I serve. I want you to know that the God of heaven looks at you in your stumbling, and your failing, in your sin, in your faithlessness, and all the times you said you were going to follow Jesus, but you didn't. He looks at you not with disgust, but with delight. The best seven words I can tell anyone tonight are these seven words, that he is not disgusted with you. He is not disgusted with you. He is not disgusted with you. Oh, six words, okay. But that's what I have to tell you tonight. Well, like, think about it this way. So, so I want to reintroduce you to one of my kids, uh, and I'm going to put a picture of hope. Uh, up here on the screen. And this is Hope. Um, And this was a really special time in Hope's life. We actually took this picture. You can see happy birthday there. This was around uh, her birthday back in February. And right around her birthday, Hope was learning to do something really special that kids learn to do. And what she was learning to do was she was learning to walk. Now, if you've ever seen kids or your brother, sister, or little kid learn to walk, it's actually like a fascinating thing to watch. The first thing they do is it's called pulling up. What they do is they grab a couch or a chair, And they pull themselves up on it. And they're kind of leaning on it. And then the next step after they learn to walk is they let go of it and they stand. And oftentimes they'll sort of stand and orient themselves. And then the very next thing they do isn't walking. It's actually the most adorable thing babies do. They do the deep squat. They learn to squat. They feel in control. They feel like they got this. And then, then it happens. Then they lift up their foot. And they're not sure what they're doing, and they put it down, and the moment it hits the floor, they're so scared of it that they fall to the ground. Now, if you fell to the ground today during some rec game, you would have the wisdom to know that God has given you arms to catch your fall. Babies do not have that wisdom. The saddest thing in the entire world is watching a one-year-old fall over like the Leaning Tower of Pisa, and boom, right into the ground. But here's what you did. When you were this age, you got up again, and you put one foot down, And then you put the other foot down, and your parents lost their minds. Listen, here's what happened to me as a dad. My daughter starts walking. She just takes like that first little step. And I don't stand over here. I'm like, what's for dinner tonight? No, I'm all in on it. And what I do as a dad is I get down here, and I say the same thing to all my kids. Walk to daddy. Walk to daddy like I'm just a little bit here. Just walk to me. Walk to daddy. And here's what she does. She sees me. She takes her step. She takes another step, she falls to the ground. She pulls herself back up, she tries to take a step, she takes a step, maybe another half step, and she falls to the ground. 
This is the process. I'm on the ground. Walk to daddy. She's falling over and over again. One step, two steps, half a step. She can't even stand up. She keeps failing. And here's what I need you to know. Never once in all of the time when my children were learning to walk, did I look at my precious little babies and go, you are one pathetic baby. Are you kidding me? Whoa, 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 whoa. One step? That's all you've got for me right now? You have this whole life you've lived an entire year and you've got one step in you? Do better. What is wrong with you? How can you be so sad and pathetic? And you know what the tragedy is? There are millions of people in this world who thinks that's how God looks at them. There are some of you in this room who think that that is how the God of the universe sees you. You stumble toward your God, you are taking steps toward him, and you fall, and you sin, and you fail, and you don't live up to the life he's called you to, and some of you think he's looking at you going, I hate you. But you need to remember your God in heaven is a father. He gets down at your level and says, walk to your daddy, walk to your father. He's not filled with disgust for you, he is filled with delight in you. He looks at you and says, walk toward me, you are most welcome to come to me. For someone tonight who has disqualified themselves from the love of God. I want you to know that you are not loved by God because you're special and you've done everything right. You are loved by God because he is your father in heaven. And that's just how dads love their kids. There is a father in heaven who says, come to me tonight. Yes, you failed. Yes, you'll continue to fail. Yes, you've stumbled. Yes, you've sinned. You've done everything wrong. But there is a father in heaven who says, your situation is not too far gone for me to rescue and for me to save. Verse 18 says this, then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating, without any entertainment being brought to him, and he couldn't sleep. Verse 19, at the dawn of first light, the king put up, or got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually be able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. And they have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I done anything wrong before you. Your majesty, the king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found in him, because he had trusted in his God. And at the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought and thrown into the den, along with them and their wives and their children. And before they reached the floor of the den, lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. This is how our story concludes. Our story concludes with Daniel being lifted up out of the den. Again, do you recognize the story? The stone is sealed. They come in the morning, and he is raised up out of the den. This is the story of Jesus. And yet I want to show you one curious thing. One way in which the story of Daniel and the story of Jesus take two very different roads. See, I said the story of Daniel and the story of Jesus were parallel. It was like the same story being told over and over again. But then it comes to this point, and there's this fork in the road where the stories go two very different directions. Look at verse 23 with me. Do you see what it says? It says, when Daniel was lifted from the lion's den, no wound was found on him. But then look down at verse 24. It says that the people, the enemies of Daniel, the enemies of God, they were thrown into the lion's den. And it says, all of their bones were crushed. For Daniel, no wound was found on him. 
For Daniel's enemies and God's enemies, all their bones were crushed. And I want you to know in the story of Jesus, it's the exact opposite. See, for Daniel, no wound was found on him and his enemies were crushed. For Jesus, he was crushed and his enemies got to go free. This is the story of the gospel. The story of the gospel is the story that Jesus is the one who was crushed on our behalf. He is the one who takes the wounds on our behalf that we, you and I, the enemies of God, might go free. This is why it says in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 5, it says, He, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. This is the story of Jesus. It is the story of the one who was crushed for our sins. He was wounded for our iniquities. God put the wrath of God upon him on the cross, not upon us. You need to understand that this is the story of Jesus. That Jesus dies for us. He is wounded for us. And listen, when I say that Jesus died, you need to get it out of your mind that it was a pleasant, easy, or simple death. Well, one of the historians of the first century who wasn't even a Christian talked about crucifixion. And the way he described crucifixion, he called it the most wretched of deaths. I want you to know that Jesus didn't just die. Jesus was tortured. Jesus was slaughtered. And he did it for you. The story of Jesus is the story of a man who was praying just like Daniel was. He's praying in a garden and he's betrayed by one of his closest friends. One of his closest friends turns him in and he's betrayed. And Jesus is arrested and he's put on trial. He bounces back and forth between trials that are illegal and in the middle of the night. And not at all how the law should work. And he is sentenced and condemned to death by a coward who would rather quell the clouds, who would rather make sure everything is just kind of okay than do what is right. Jesus is sentenced to death, and the very first thing that happens is he is scourged. When Jesus is scourged, what it describes in the scriptures is that Jesus would have been brought up to a pole uh, made of concrete, made made of stone, made of wood, and his hands would be tied around that pole. He would be stripped of all of his clothes, and he would sit there with his hands wrapped around tied to this pole. And then Roman soldiers who were trained to inflict the most pain possible would take a whip made of leather. On the end of that whip, there were bone shards and rocks and pieces of glass. They would take that whip and they would scourge Jesus. They would lash him down the back. He would start bleeding from every part of his back. Sometimes the whip would come around the rib cage, break the rib cage, and rip out organs of the people who were scourged. Jesus took it willingly with his arms wrapped around this pole taking this beating taking the beating that was given to him and then they loosed him from that beating put a crown of thorns around his head allowing all the blood vessels of his head to burst and blood to start flowing down his face then they led him out to be crucified in the middle of the middle eastern sun he hasn't slept all night he hasn't eaten all night he's been scourged he's been beaten some people never even made it to that point it was so brutal They made him carry the crossbar of his cross, which historians estimate would be about 100 pounds. A 100-pound wooden log on his back as he walks up the hill through Jerusalem as people jeer at him. A number of times the scriptures say he falls down and it crushes him underneath. He was crushed for our iniquities. That same Jesus would get to the top of a hill, and that hill has a name. The hill where Jesus died and where he was crucified is called in the scriptures Golgotha. And Golgotha throughout the ages was translated into different languages. And when it was translated into the Latin language, this this, this hill called Golgotha, the skull, 
was translated into the word Calvaria. And that word Calvaria is the word we get the word Calvary from. You know what our church is all about? You know what the central image and the central message of our church is? It is Jesus' death on the cross for you. If you've ever said, I go to Calvary and I love Calvary, you are saying, I go to the place that remembers that Jesus died for us. What's right outside our cross? The most massive thing you can see from the freeway. It's a cross to remember that hill of Calvary. Jesus is laid down on the cross. They would strip him entirely naked. He's laying there on the cross and they would stretch out his arms and they would take a nail made of iron about five to seven inches long, and they would drive it through his wrist. Not his hand, because it would rip out from right here, right through his wrist where all of the nerve endings are, and shockwaves would go through his whole body. They would nail through both of his feet together onto the cross, and then they would hoist him up. And again, in every image of the cross you see, Jesus is wearing a little cloth for modesty, but the Romans had no interest in that. They wanted to torture and humiliate this man. He would have been completely naked, exposed and ashamed for the world to see, hanging there on a cross, bleeding from every part of his body. And up on that cross, Jesus would continue to bleed, but then another process would begin to take place in his body. It was the process of asphyxiation, the process of not being able to breathe. So when you are hanging on a cross, supporting all your weight on your feet and with your arms, your lungs begin to collapse in on themselves. And so the breaths would get shorter and shorter and shorter. And for Jesus to simply breathe on the cross, he would have to push up on the nail that are in his feet, his back grinding with all the wounds against a wooden cross, and he would take one breath. And do you know what Jesus did with those breaths? Jesus with those breaths could have called down an army of angels to curse everyone. He could have said, I hate you, I despise you, I am your enemy. You know what he said instead? He said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. He spoke to someone else on the cross and said, because you trust in me, you'll be with me today in paradise. He said words of mercy and of grace and of kindness and of goodness. And finally, that same Jesus pushed up. He breathed his laughs and shouted out the Greek word, tetelestai, it is finished. And he gave up his life. To prove that Jesus was dead, they stabbed him in the side and blood and water poured out. That same Jesus is lowered down from the cross and he is thrown into a tomb, wrapped in linen and put into a new tomb. He's buried for you. That is the story of Jesus. May you never sanitize the story of the cross. May the cross never be something cute or kitschy or fashionable for you. The cross was a place of suffering. It was a place of death. It was a place of pain. And it was a place of torture. But here's what I need you to know tonight. I believe upon the authority of the word of God that the physical agony Jesus suffered on the cross was the second most painful thing he experienced that day on the hill called Calvary. The physical pain was more than we could possibly imagine, but Jesus suffered more that day in the spiritual realm than he did physically. On that day, the scriptures say that God took all of the sin of you and me all of the wickedness you and I have ever done, all the times we've lied and lusted and been rageful and greedy, all of the times we've disrespected and dishonored our parents, everything we've ever done, all of the racism and hate and genocide and murder and rape of the entire world, he instead decides to put it on Jesus. And he assigns that guilt to his beloved son. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to become sin for us. And God looks at his beloved son 
and says, I will pour out the wrath, the punishment, the condemnation that is due for every human being, you and me included, not upon them, but upon my beloved son, Jesus. See, Jesus suffered physically on the cross, but as a substitute for our sin, Jesus agonized spiritually on the cross. And you know why he did that? Do you know why Jesus suffered on the cross more than any sinner ever will in hell? Because he loves you. And that's what love does. I'll never forget, it was 2019, and my wife calls me in a panic. She says she was at the playground, and our daughter Grace was playing on the playground, and she fell off of the playground. She hit the ground, and her chin split open. Immediately, we knew we had to go to the hospital, so we rushed together to Los Robles Hospital. We meet in the parking lot, and my daughter is bleeding everywhere, all over her shirt. We're trying to push up another shirt against it just to stop the blood. We get into the emergency room, and immediately the nurse says, we need to do stitches. And so we bring my little two-year-old daughter, and we put her on this little table where she's going to get some stitches. And the nurse comes and says, this is going to be painful. And the nurse tries to numb it, but you don't really numb anything in your chin. There's too much there. She begins to take out the needle and drive that needle through my daughter's chin. And she does stitch after stitch after stitch after stitch. And here's what I want you to know. There are certain sounds in my life I will never get out of my ears. It's just never going to happen. There's things I can forget. I will never forget the sound of my daughter laying on that table, writhing in pain from these stitches. A wound on her chin, writhing in pain. And here's what I need you to know about me and every dad who's ever lived. I would have given anything in that moment to take her place. I would have given anything in that moment to push her off that table and to take the stitches in my own skin in her place. Why? Because I love her. Child of God, that's what Jesus did for you. He stepped into your place. He took the hit for you. He said, I love them too much for them to suffer in this way, and I will step in for them. This is Jesus on the cross. Jesus suffers and dies in your place. He takes the hit for you. Why? Because he loves you. He is filled with compassion and grace and delights for you. He is for you. He is with you. He is on your side. And Jesus takes the hit for you. The old preachers used to say that Jesus paid a price you did not owe, or he did not owe, because you owed a price you could not pay. There was nothing in you that could have possibly paid the price for your salvation. And Jesus says, rather than her going to hell, I'll take hell for her. Rather than that man experiencing God's wrath, I'll experience it for him. Jesus says, bring it on, and willingly takes that upon his body. And you know what that means? As our substitute, it means Jesus took all the penalty that was due to us. It means that when Romans 8.1 says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, it means there's none left for you because Jesus drank it all. He took it all into himself. So you know what that means? It means the next time you sin and stumble in your sin and fall into that same sin that you swore you'd never do again, you don't have to beat yourself up anymore. Why? Because Jesus got beat up on the cross for you. The next time you walk in shame thinking God can never love me for what I did last night or last week or last month, you go, I don't have to live in shame anymore. Because Jesus was ashamed, exposed to the world in your place. And the next time you feel like your sin cuts you off from God, you remember that my Jesus hung on a cross, pushed up on the nails, and said, Eloi, Eloi, lava sabachthana, meaning, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, Jesus is cut off from the Father so that you will never have to be. This is the story of the cross. This is the story of Jesus. This is the story of Calvary, that hill where Jesus died for us. You want to know the best part of the story? 
They put Jesus in a tomb and they begin mourning and weeping because they think it's all over. And just like some of you think it's all over, what could God possibly have to do with me? But then on the third day, Jesus shakes off death. He gets up. He raises from the dead. He is alive now and forevermore. He is seated, ruling and reigning at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven. This is our Jesus. He is victorious over death. And because Jesus is victorious over death, he is victorious over your sin and your forgiveness is paid in full. That's the invitation. That's the gospel. And that's what I extend to you tonight. The invitation. Daniel chapter 6, verse 25, says, King Darius wrote to all the nations and the people of every language on the earth, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree from every part of my kingdom that the people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. Why? Because if you don't fear God, you don't know God. For he is the living God, verse 26, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed and his dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves and he performs signs and wonders in the heavens of the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the mouths of lions. You know what our God is in the business of doing? He's in the business of rescuing, of saving, of redeeming, of forgiving. If you think you've sinned too much, I need you to know something. There is more forgiveness in God than there is potential to sin in you. He is a God who saves, a God who redeems, a God who rescues, and he does not need your help to do it. He does not need your assistance. He does not need your effort. It's like a number of years ago, I was in the backyard. We have a little hot tub back there, and my kids were in the hot tub. And now they're tall enough to put their feet on the ground and their head above water, but at the time they weren't. So from time to time, they'd misstep and jump into the middle. And I remember one time one of them goes under, and you can tell they're not having fun. They're drowning. And our hot tub's only this deep. But they're so little that they're in there, and they're swirling around, and I reach in because I'm two feet from them, and I grab her. And I lift her up out of the water. I want you to imagine years from now she tells the story of the time she was almost drowning and dad tried to help me, but I really did my part in it. You know what she did in that part? Nothing. You know what I did? Everything. You know when it comes to your salvation, you know what you contribute? Nothing. You know what God contributes? Everything. God rescues. God saves. Not on your merit, not on your good work, not on everything you've done, but simply upon his mercy and his grace applied to you through the cross, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. So how do you receive that forgiveness? How do you receive that mercy? How do you get saved by God? What's this invitation I'm extending to you tonight? It is very simple. How do you receive the salvation and forgiveness of God? You ask for it. You ask for it. See, there is a phrase that is found all throughout the Bible And I want to show this phrase to you tonight in Romans chapter 10 and verse 13. Here's what this phrase says. It says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the phrase that I want you to know tonight. And this is the invitation for every soul in this room. It is an invitation to call upon the name of the Lord. And it is an invitation tonight for those of you who have been running from God your whole life. But it is time to plant your foot in the ground, turn, and recognize God has never stopped chasing after you. And if you would turn your eyes toward heaven, he would rescue, save, redeem, forgive, and make you new. Listen, here's what I know. Some of you made this decision years ago. Some of you put your faith and trust in Jesus many years ago. Tonight, this invitation is not for you. There is always the remembrance of the gospel and what God has done, but I want you to know that there are some of you who have never put your faith and trust in Jesus. Some of you who know things about God, but you don't know God. Your sin is unforgiven before him. And here's the invitation for you tonight. The invitation begins with this beautiful, bold word, everyone. Everyone. It begins with the idea that this is for everyone. You go, is this for me? Are you sure? 
If you're included in everyone, this invitation's for you. No matter if you grew up in a Christian home or not, no matter if you sinned really bad or not so much, it's for everyone. It says everyone who calls, who cries out. You know what that means? It means you can't do it on your own. The moment you recognize, I can't do this on my own and I need God, is the moment you are ready for God to rescue you. You know, people ask me sometimes, are there any type of people God won't save? And the answer is, yeah, there's one type of person. You want to know the one type of person God won't save? It's the person who doesn't think they need saving. It's the person who doesn't think they need God, who's got this on their own. When you call out to God, it's a recognition that you need saving. It says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Now all week we've seen that word Lord and we've identified that in the Old Testament is the word Yahweh, the God who is who he is. But that's not what we see in the New Testament. In the New Testament, the word Lord is the word kurios. Kurios means master, it means king, it means the one who is in charge of your life. So when we call on the name of the Lord, it's not just God rescue me and I'm going to go do my own thing. No, no, no. It is us declaring that Jesus is now the king, the kurios, the master, and the Lord of our life. You know, I grew up in church and from time to time I would hear the invitation that we were being called to make Jesus the Lord of our life. And I want to be abundantly clear on something tonight. I want to be abundantly clear that you don't make Jesus the Lord of anything because he already is the Lord of everything. You don't make Jesus the Lord of your life. You revere him as Lord. You acknowledge him as Lord. You confess him as Lord. And you call upon him as Lord. You confess that he's already in charge of all of heaven and earth, your life included. And in that moment, you recognize that he's the king. It says everyone, everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, not might be saved or should be saved, or if you're a good boy and girl, after you do, you'll be saved. It says in that moment, these are the beautiful words of this promise, you will be saved. It's a promise. You can take it to the bank. The greatest thing about our God is that when you call upon his name, he doesn't ask you to earn it or to show that you're good enough. He simply saves you right where you are. So Calvary, here's the invitation for you tonight. If you've been running from God your whole life, doing your own thing, living in your sin, doing your own thing, tonight I want to invite you to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And you can do that right where you sit tonight. So here's what I want all across this room. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? There's a reason we do this. And the reason is simple. The Bible says very clearly that it is appointed for every human being to die once. And then to stand in judgment before God. And maybe you don't think this is true, but there's going to come a day you die. And you will stand before the judge of the universe. And the reason right now your eyes are closed and your heads are bowed is because every one of you will stand there alone. Your friend to your left and right won't be there with you. Your pastor, your cabin leader won't be there with you. Your mom and dad won't be there with you. Only you will. And on that day, the only thing that matters is what you did with Jesus. And the invitation he extends to you. And so here's the invitation for you tonight. I'm going to invite some of you to call in the name of the Lord right now where you sit. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. This isn't the only prayer. It's just a way of you calling on the name of the Lord. And if you want to pray that prayer with me, you can just pray it in the quietness of your heart. You can repeat the words I'm saying just in the quietness of your mind and heart. And call upon the name of the Lord right now. Here's what I want you to pray. I want you to pray, God, I confess you created me. God, I confess that I've turned from you. God, I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. But God, tonight I repent. I confess my sin. 
I turn from my sin and I throw myself on the mercy of Jesus. God, I give all I know of me to all I know of you. God, save me. God, rescue me. God, forgive me. Tonight, Lord, I call upon your name. And if you've done that just now, if tonight's the night for the first time you are calling on the name of the Lord, going from knowing things about God to knowing God, asking that he would forgive your sin, I want you to do one thing on three. Would you open your eyes and look straight at me? One, two, three. Look straight at me. All over this room. You can still do it. Now look straight at me. Keep looking at me. Here's what I want to tell you. If this is just like a recommitment thing and you're like, I'll just do this thing again every year I'm at camp, this isn't for you and you can close your eyes. But if tonight's the night, you're saying, no, 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 no. Tonight I'm calling on the name of the Lord. I've been doing my own thing, but I need him to forgive me. I'm turning from my sin. I'm throwing myself on Jesus. Keep looking straight at me. I have two questions for you. Those of you looking at me right now, do you believe Jesus Christ died on this cross for your sin and he rose from the dead for your salvation that you might be forgiven? If so, nod your head yes. If not, I don't want to make a hypocrite of you. You can close your eyes. And they're the same. Do you believe that Jesus, are you confessing that he is Lord, he's king, like he's in charge of your life, and even if you stumble and fall, he gets to be in charge from now on, not you, but him. If so, nod your head yes. Well, if that's what you believe, and that's the God you called on, I've got good news for you. This promise doesn't apply to you someday in the future. It applies to you right now. Like in this very moment, the God of the universe saves you. He rescues you. And if that's true, here's what I want to ask. If it's true that you've been saved and rescued, then you have nothing to be afraid of anymore forevermore. And if that's true, I want you to have a moment to acknowledge that right here in this camp, right here in this chapel. So if you're looking at me right now and tonight's the night you've called on the name of the Lord, on three, I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet and acknowledge that before your church body here today. If tonight's your night, I want you to be bold and stand to your feet on three. One, two, three on your feet. Let me ask this question, stay standing. Is there anyone here who still needs to stand? You know inside of you God is calling you toward, is there anyone who needs to stand still? Well, here's the remarkable thing. Yeah. Young man, young lady, I want you to know God loves you. He sees you. He created you. And he knew this moment would happen. He has been leading you your entire life to this moment that he might encounter you in his power. I told you on night one, I'll tell you again. God has you here this week on purpose and for a purpose. And his purpose is that he would show his mercy, his compassion, his kindness, and his grace in your life. It is that you would receive the promise of Romans 10, 13, knowing that this is your destiny now and forevermore. That God saves, that God rescues, and he's met you here tonight. Amen? Hey, would everyone in this room stand up? Would we stand to our feet and let me remind you that we serve a God who is who he is. We serve a God that meets us in the midst of trial. He meets us in the midst of sin. He meets us in the midst of life. And he says, I love you. I see you. I am sovereign. 
I am king. Our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever pleases him. I want you to know tonight the God you serve, the God you rescue. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the mighty one. He is returning to judge the living and the dead. He will raise your bodies and make all things new. Tonight, we have just had a taste of his salvation. But believe me when I tell you, child of God, something so much better is coming. Our God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. 